My dad never taught me to whistle like that. Well, good morning. My name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, you're in week three of a series that we're doing on the book of Revelation all the way through the summer. The series we're doing right now is called uh, The Lamb Wins. We're starting where John starts by looking at who Jesus is. The book of Revelation is about Jesus, first and foremost. And uh, before we read the passage of Scripture, I, I feel like I need to tell you a story um, that something that happened to me this morning at 3.30, I, I, this is rare, so if you're a guest and you're like, what's he getting ready to say? Just stay with me, okay? Don't normally do this. Uh, I was woken up at, at 3.30 this morning, and I had a dream, and I've never felt, I haven't felt this impressed to say something in a long time, so I'm just going to tell you the story. You can take it for what it's worth. It applies to what we're going to say today. You'll see. Uh, I woke up at 3.30, and uh, I don't normally remember dreams that I have, but I, in this dream that I had at 3.30 in the morning, I was reading a book by one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite authors who writes about following Jesus is a guy by the name of Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard uh, was a professor of uh, philosophy at the University of Southern California for 40 years, one of the most popular professors on his campus. Uh, but he understood and lived the life that I want to live as a follower of Jesus, and the way one person described him, uh, I, met, I had the chance to meet him personally. He died a couple years ago. But one person described him and said, uh, when you were around him, the kind of atmosphere he gave off, he said, it's like you wanted to be in his zip code. Do, do you get what I'm saying? And so uh, in this dream I had at 3.30 in the morning, I'm reading one of his books, and in the dream, uh, there is in, in the, the page his cell phone number, and in my dream, I called him in the middle of the night to ask him a question. <laughs> Stay with me. And uh, he picks up the phone in my dream, and obviously it's in the middle of the night, and uh, I had kind of a dumb question. I don't remember what the question was, but kind of a dumb question to ask, and I felt kind of stupid for doing it. And I kind of fumbled with my words and tried to say, well, your number was in the book. And he said something in the dream. He said, it's okay. My life is not my own. And so I, I, I woke, kind of woke up out of the stupor of that, and I'm like, okay, Lord, what, what are, you, are you saying something to me? I mean, I don't normally wake up at 3.30 in the morning. What's the deal? And I got the very in, strong impression from God's Spirit. I said, I want you to be like that. Were you just able to say, when someone interrupts you, you know what, my life is not my own. Uh, we're going to talk about that today. And so I want to invite you to stand, and I'm going to read out loud uh, Revelation chapter 5. It'll be on the screen. You can follow along, and then we're going to look at what it means for our life. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. Appreciate that. Well, everybody that you know, uh, wants uh, the same things. Uh, they want, you want, I want a, a better life. We all want uh, to be attached to something bigger than us. We all want to be closer to the people in our life in some way, if we could make those relationships 
deeper or better, and there wasn't fighting or differences. We'd like that. And we all want to have a clearer understanding about why are we here? (laughs) What's my purpose in life? Why do I get up every day? We all want the same things, and I, I, we, we all usually don't know how to answer those questions, but I want to say to you that this is a shared hunger that we all have. We all, we all want these things, and everybody is living in the same human story, trying to answer the same questions, and I, I think these are the questions that we ask. We're going to put them on the screen. Why am I here? What's gone wrong? How do we fix it? What will it look like when we get there? Now, I'm a a Christian pastor, so you're not going to be surprised that I'm going to tell you the Christian answer to those questions are, well, why are we here? We're here for God. What's gone wrong? Well, sin is what has gone wrong. And how do we fix it? Well, Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead is what fixes it. And what will it look like when we get there? It will look like restoration and reconciliation and renewal and the peace that you hunger for in your life. Uh, Those are the answers to those questions. Those are the Christian answers to those questions. But all of us are, on some level, asking those questions and trying to say, okay, this is what all those things mean. But I know that along the way in trying to answer those questions, that there's always something that gets in the way. There are at least two things I know that always get in the way for all of us, and I'm going to call them these two things. Uh, One, our defaults, to our allegiances, our defaults and our allegiances. Turn to your neighbor and say, you got some defaults and you got some allegiances. We're going to talk about that. Just tell them. Just tell them. So our defaults, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, there are some experiences that are unique to modern life that our relatives, our great-grandparents wouldn't have ever had 100 years ago. Um, we have this experience, especially if you work in a, an office environment ever. Uh, we have an office environment here. And uh, when you have a, a computer and you want to print something, you have what's called a default setting on your computer, and it always prints to the same place. And so I've had this experience. Maybe you've had this experience. I've had it here. Where I, I'm working on something, and then i got to hit print, and then I, I walk over to where that printer is I think it's going to go to, and what's wrong? Why is it not there? And I go back to my computer and I sit down. I'm like, what's wrong with this stupid thing? I hit print again. I walk over to where it's supposed to print out, the printer I think that it goes to, and it's still not there. And then I realize that I had the default set to an entirely different printer. And that's where it was printing out. And that default determined where it ended up. Now, maybe you don't work in an office environment, but you have a phone, and most of us have some smartphone, an Android or an iPhone, and you have, when you get it out of the box and you turn it on, it asks you all kinds of questions, and you set the defaults. You set what the color looks like when it comes on, and you set what ringtone comes in when your kids call you, and it, you set uh, what messages you'll see and what messages you won't see. Your, your default determines what you end up seeing, and your experience is shaped by your defaults. In other words, your defaults define what is normal for you. It's, it's kind of like the joke of someone who's outside a fish tank and says to the fish, hey fish, you're swimming in water, and the fish look back at you and say, 
what's water? <laughs> it's just normal. The defaults are just normal. And so you're probably saying, what do you mean? What are you talking about defaults? I, what, what defaults are you talking about? And I want to give you an insight right here. I want to pause and give you an insight about your life if you want to make your life better. Uh, your defaults are determined by your desires. What your desires do is they go into the control panel of your heart and they set your defaults. And if you want to change your life, guess what you need to do? You need to change the things that you desire. Now, Christians were made, we say, this is the answer we say to this whole conundrum. We say, listen, we were made to desire God above everything else. One of my go-to quotes about this whole thing is from a guy named Augustine or Augustine of Hippo. He was a bishop of the church in the third century, one of the most influential Christian leaders of the last 1,700 or so plus years. And Augustine said this. He said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. In other words, we try and we try. What's this? What's that about? How come I'm so restless? How come I can't make sense of life? And Augustine says, listen, God made us for himself and our hearts will always feel that restlessness until they rest in who God is and who we are in him. The problem is that we don't want to change our desires. <laughs> We're stubborn. And, and the reality is, is that it's our desires that cause us pain in life and make us weep. Um, early, earlier this week, one night this week, my daughter, uh, who's eight, uh, we put her to bed, and she goes to bed, and um, I'm sitting downstairs, and I'm watching TV, and she comes out, like this, you have kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? Your kids come out, and all of a sudden, there's a small human standing, right? What? What are you doing? Go to bed, and, and she, she comes out, and she says, Daddy, will you come lay with me? No, I've, we've already put you to bed. You, you need to go back down, and you need to go back to sleep. Well, can mommy lay with me? Okay, mommy's upstairs, and mommy's tired, and she's had a long day, and she's not going to come lay with you. You need to go back to sleep. Can you please go upstairs and tell mommy to come lay with me? I said, go back and lay down in your bed. Go back and go to sleep. So she does. She wanders off, and then I, I like a, an attentive parent, don't notice that she goes into a room and then comes back out, runs up the stairs, and goes upstairs to get her mom. Well, what my, what she, my wife didn't know and what I didn't know is instead of going into the room where my wife was and saying, Mom, could you come lay with me? She took out a piece of paper, and she wrote a note, and she slid the note under the door thinking that my wife would just see the note and go, okay, I'll come down. And so she comes back downstairs. I didn't see all this happen. And about an hour later, she comes out. Same story. Dad, I'm tired. I want, to, I want mom to lay with me. Can you go get mom and tell her to come lay with me? So why isn't mommy here? Why is she not laying with me? And I said, I, I told you to go to bed. What are you doing? Why, why are you up? I, I want mommy to lay with me. I told mommy to come lay with me. Why is she not laying with me? And she starts to sob. She starts to cry because eight-year-old girls are good at that. And and, and like a, a great attentive parent, I waited for about five minutes while she cried in her bedroom. And then I went into her room. And she's sobbing. I mean, she's just weeping and weeping. And she says, I left mommy a note. Why didn't she read my note and see my note? I said, well, honey, you have to tell mom. You can't just slide a note under the door and expect that she's going to read it. Our desires, we're, we're like that. See, when, with our desires, what we do is we're basically writing a note and we're sliding on under the door of life, hoping whatever we think is on the other side of the door is going to respond to our desires and make it. And then we find ourselves weeping because our desires have not been met yet. <laughs> but our desires are the thing that stands in the way. We've got to change our desires and desire the thing that God made us for. 
So the second thing uh, is uh, our allegiances, our allegiances. And this is whatever we give uh, supremacy to. In other words, the unquestioned assumption that that thing is the best. And we can do this with anything. We do this with sports teams. We might say that the Cubs are best, or we might say that the Sox are best, or we actually love God and we say that the Cardinals are best. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what, I don't know what it is. Hey, I'm talking, you're not, right? So you can, you has got to take it. Uh, we, we do this with other things. We, do, we say our union is the best. Our trade is the best. The company that we built is the best. We can say that our country is the best. And, and w- the way we show our allegiances is we make pledges to these things. And so uh, every time Go Cubs Go comes on, it goes deeper into your heart that they are the best. It's a sign to me that sinners enter, a sin has entered the world and deceived many, but that's a whole other issue. Um, again, I'm doing the talking. You're not. You do this. You get to say whatever you want. We sign a pledge to uphold our brotherhood. Like, those are my brothers, and I will always stand with them. We, uh, when we put our hand over our heart and we say the pledge of, what's the word? Allegiance, right? We're saying, we think that's the best. And those pledges are all ways to get you to believe that those things are the supreme things that you need to give your allegiance to. And now we can do this with anything. We can do this with money. We can do this with our career. We can give our allegiance to our family. We can give our allegiance to our car and loving our car. I mean, the list is endless. The human heart always swears allegiance to something, and that allegiance ends up drowning out anything else. And our heart is made to give our allegiance first to God and to nothing else. So if we don't mess with our defaults and we don't figure out our allegiances we never get where we want to go in our story now i've been giving you uh, some some definitions of a religious word that often gets misused and misunderstood and and that word is worship in fact i would say to you that your defaults plus your allegiances mean that's the thing that you really worship and it's, it's the heart of the message of the book of Revelation that we're to worship the right thing, namely God. If we don't, we get lulled to sleep by our desires and our allegiances and we stay stuck in our story and we don't know how to get out and we've slipped the note under the door waiting for our desires to be met and we have pain and we weep. Now you may say, well, hey, listen, I'm not that religious. I don't worship. Or you say, uh, hey, dude, what, what are you talking about? I worship. I come to church on Sundays. What are you talking about, bro? I mean, I, I'm, I'm right here right now. What do you mean? I'm not talking about what you do with your Sunday morning. I'm talking about what you do with your life and the direction your life is pointed. That's what worship is about. Uh, this is the kind of the time of year that uh, everyone's graduating. We've gone through most of the graduations, but every year uh, the, the, the graduation commencement speeches that are the best kind of get shared. They'll get put on YouTube or they'll get shared on Facebook or, or something like that, and we kind of see the best of the best. And one that circulates every year happened a few years ago. I, I, an author by the name of David Foster Wallace, he's a best-selling author, wrote a bunch of books, and he was giving a speech at a school in Ohio uh, about commencement. David Foster Wallace, you need to know, is not a religious person not a Christian. The college he was giving the commencement speech is the farthest thing you could possibly imagine from a Christian university in any way, shape, form, or fashion. But I, 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 he said something that I, you need to hear, okay, about this entire subject. Listen to what he said. We're gonna, we got on the screen. It's a little bit long, but stay with me, okay? This is what David Foster Wall says. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship 
and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some invaluable set of ethical principles is that pretty much ever, anything else you worship will eat you alive. And then he goes on and gives examples. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. David Wallace understood that this was a part of what we wrestle with as human beings, he could never sort out, though, what he actually worshipped. Uh, just a few years later, in his 40s, he went into his room, took a rope, ended his life. Why? I mean, why does someone, I'm not saying you don't worship the right thing, you're going to kill yourself. I'm, not, I'm simply saying those things that he pointed out, those things all give you different answers to the questions of your story. So, so let's just insert one of them and see what I mean by that, okay? You, maybe, maybe the thing that you give, your default is set on and your allegiance is set on is money. Jesus said that's the number one competitor for our hearts. Jesus talked about it all the time. So it's not unlikely there'd be a lot of us in this room that that would be where we set our defaults and our allegiances. And so we ask the question, well, why am I here? Well, I'm here to be successful. Well, what went wrong? Well, there's not enough. Well, how do I fix it? Well, I've got to work hard and do really well. And then what will my life look like? Well, then it'll look like a life of ease and luxury. The problem is when you try to answer those questions with anything other than who we were made to answer those questions with is that you get lulled to sleep and you have pain and you don't understand why. And, and you're trying to make something worthy that's not worthy. In fact, the word worship is an old English word uh, that means worthship. What you think is worth something above everything else. What you think is worthy. And so John is saying that Jesus, is, above everything else, is worthy. And so Jesus is worth desiring. And Jesus is worth setting your defaults on. And Jesus is worth your allegiances. Je Jesus is worth moving your whole life toward. And this is the whole setting of this uh, passage in, in Revelation chapter 5. In fact, Revelation 4 and 5 is the heart of the book, and, and it's a picture of what it's like when you're in God's presence. It's a picture of heaven. And if you read chapter 4, you read about these creatures who are always falling down before God's presence and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then these 24 elders, and they're always worshiping God with their words and their language. And then uh, it, it's this picture of honor and majesty that surround God's throne. In fact, the psalmist said that honest, honor and majesty surround him. It's the picture that Revelation 4 and Five is trying to paint. Now, we're Americans, and so we don't do pomp and circumstance quite like Europeans do and the monarchs, and so we don't quite get the sense of this, but uh, the, the moment that this came home to me about what it means when you have honor and majesty surrounding something was when Ronald Reagan died. Uh, when he died, we lived in Virginia, and his body lied, uh, was lying in state for a number of days in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C., and uh, the last day that you could, the public could come and pass by the casket, uh, some friends said, hey, let's go up there. And I'm, I'm 
last minute, didn't have kids, great, let's do it. So we drove up, we got there at 9.30. Now, if you know how the, the Washington, D.C. is set up, the Capitol building is here, the National Mall goes like this, and then a mile down here is the Washington Monument, and then the White House, and then all the way down, another mile down is the Lincoln Memorial. And so we got in line, a queue, the line that goes back and forth like this, about halfway between the Capitol building and the Washington Monument at 9.30. About 30 minutes later, they closed the line. It wasn't a party atmosphere, but people were dressed up. There were military uh, in full dress uniform. There was an Air Force couple that kept following us all the way through the line. Uh, the woman was wearing hobble, uh, was wearing high heels, and uh, when we came out the other side at 6 o'clock in the morning, uh, she was hobbling, but it was her attempt to show honor. We, so we waited in line. We went all down the queue, all the way in, and then it, it was kind of, kind of, this excitement kind of got like, you're almost there, almost there. And then right as you got up to the door of the rotunda, I don't know if you've ever been in the rotunda of the Capitol building. It's a beautiful, beautiful room. Uh, there was this hush. And we went in, and it was the most reverent, uh, I was kind of mad that the military, I'm not, I'm not mad that the military did it, but I'm just mad that the church isn't doing better than that. I'm like, what, what? It was, it was so majestic. There was a member of each of the four branches of the military standing perfectly still. The light was shining on the casket. And it was this experience that I will always remember of honor and majesty. John is saying, around God is that all of the time. He's trying to get us, give us a picture of what it's like in God's presence. If you're around God, you feel that kind of like, oh, reverence and awe all the time. And so then chapter 5 keeps this thought going, but there are these really uh, weird images about a, a scroll, and there's weeping, and he says that he, he saw the man sitting on the throne, which is God, with a scroll in his hand, there's writing on both sides, and sealed with, a, with seals. And, and he's, he's, what is this? Well, in that day, you would write things on a scroll, and you'd write them on one side, and if you had a lot to say, you would turn the scroll over, and you'd write it on the back side. So we're meant to understand that there's a lot here that we needed to understand, and when it was sealed, it was sealed with the, the signet ring of the king. So this is an edict from the king. This is important information that all the king's subjects need to understand. And he says, there's this scroll. And he said, then everyone looked around heaven. They looked on the earth and under the earth. And there was nobody that was worthy to open the scroll. And John's response to that was to say, and I wept. And I wept. I think what he was experiencing was what we all experience when we want something really, really bad, and then we get it, and then we find out it's really not all that great. You ever been there? Like, man, I, I worked my whole life, and I spent all of my time and energy and money, and, and then I get it, and I'm like, that's it? And so John's, John's response is like, what you and I feel when our desires don't meet up, and we wept. He wept. There's no one worthy to open the scroll. And then an elder comes to him and says, no, 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 no. Wait, John, wait, John. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And if you know the whole, where this all comes from, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, and Jacob gave a blessing to his 12 sons and his fourth son Judah, he lists out all the things that are going to happen in Judah's life because out of Judah's line will come King David and out of King David's line will come Jesus, the Messiah. And, and, and he says to Judah, you're a lion cub. And here is the fulfillment of everything that was promised to Judah, the lion, like the full-grown lion of the tribe of Judah. And I've seen lions in the wild. If you go to Africa and you see the king of beasts in the wild, when you go there, there are game reserves, and it's reversed from our zoos. Your car 
is the cage, and they are wild. So if you get outside your cage, they're going to eat you. So I've, I've seen them in the wild. There's majestic, majestic creatures that are the king who rule over everything that they see. Probably the person who's done the best job of describing this, uh, who Jesus the king was, is C.S. Lewis. His books, The Chronicles of Narnia and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, and there's this figure in the books, Aslan, the lion, who's the symbol of Jesus. If you struggle with understanding what Christianity is about, go read those books. They're children's books. They're fantastic. Uh, so he, he has this uh, Aslan, the lion, and there are these children in the books who haven't yet met Aslan, the lion, and all the animals can speak in the story. And so one of the girls is talking to one of the animals, and she says, she hears about Aslan, she says, oh, Aslan, he's a lion. I'm very scared to meet a lion. And she says to, to the animal, she says, is he safe? He says, oh, no, dear. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king after all. This is the, the kind of honor and majesty that John's trying to evoke for us. And then he says, the root of David. Uh, if you read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, you can see where that comes from, uh, David all the way to Jesus. And, and then uh, this is really what he's doing. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 11. Now I'll read some of it to you right here. We'll throw it on the screen. Uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What is John describing when he says the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has has triumphed, has conquered? What's he saying? He's saying that this is someone who's worthy. So this would be where, as Christians, you would go, yeah, that's right, he's worthy. He's the one that can open the seal. He's the one that can open the scroll and help us understand the secrets that we can't figure out in life. He's the one that's worthy, so he's worth desiring and he's worth giving your allegiance to. And listen, you are giving your allegiance to something. You're trying to answer those questions. Why am I here? What went wrong? How do I fix it? What does it look like? And every other answer you can come up, with, come up with will always make you weep at some point. And the reason is because those things are not worthy. I'll give you another image for worthy. The MVP. The most valuable player. The one we always count on and trust. The go-to. Don't make money and success and your politics your MVP of your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't do it, because it won't, it'll let you down. You'll slip the note under the door, but you're going to go, why didn't, they, why didn't it fulfill me? See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed, and he is able. This is what John's trying to get across to us. Well, the response that we're supposed to give is we're supposed to worship. Again, not, not, not what happens just in this room, but what happens with your life and where you're life is pointed. This is the way the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said it. He said, listen, we're to live like there's an audience of one. What's the one thing that you're living for? So let me give you three things that you're going to need to do if you're going to live for an audience of one. You're going to actually worship God with your life. And this is the first thing is you've got to deconstruct the stories in your heart. Let's just say that when you go, okay, why am I here? The reason, the answer you give is, well, I'm here for pleasure. And what's wrong? Well, there's not enough. And how do I fix it? Well, I grab everything that I can. And what will it look like when I get there? Well, it'll look like I'll have more than other people and I'll be okay. 
Or maybe you say the answer, the answer to why am I here is, well, the answer is that I'm supposed to be a success. Well, what's wrong? Well, my parents told me that I was never good enough. And how do I fix it? Well, what I do is I work really, really hard and I prove myself. And what will it look like? Well, then I'll finally have peace and feel like I'm okay. See, we're always trying to answer those questions in some way. And so we have to deconstruct the story in our heart. It'd be worth your time to take 15 minutes, prayerful minutes this week, write out those four questions and say, okay, why do I really think I'm here? How am I trying to fix it? What's it going to look like when I get there? And deconstruct the story you've built your life on. Here's a simple prayer you could pray in that process. You could just say, okay, Father, what's motivating this, and who is it that I'm trying to please? Second thing that you need to do is you need to discover that you have a soul. See, worship is about what motivates you and moves you to do things in life. And listen, I want you to know who you are, and I want you to know who you are in Jesus. I want, to know, I want you to know your relationship to the lion of the tribe of Judah who is able and who has triumphed and who has conquered. I want you to know that. But here's the reality that I run into over and over and over again. Very capable, very competent people who are successes in all the things that they try to do in their life. When you ask them about their soul and who they are in Jesus, they're basically in pre-K. They're like, I don't know. I don't have a clue. So we'll spend all of our time and we'll, we'll become an apprentice and then we'll work our way up so that we're a master electrician or we're a master craftsman or you go to school and you go to elementary school and high school and college and get a master's degree and then you get a PhD, which means you know everything about that subject there is to know. And yet when you look at yourself, you're completely clueless and you're in kindergarten. <laughs> Listen, it's awesome that you come into this room and I hope this adds value to your life. But don't let me be the only person who tells you what's going on in your soul. Know it for yourself. Discover that you have a soul. Get a PhD. Get, become a master of knowing who you are in Jesus and who you are as a human being. Know what motivates you and your defaults and your allegiances so you can point them out and not be driven by them all the time. And then this is the third thing, is that you've got to wake up. You've got to wake up. You get lulled to sleep. You and I get lulled to sleep by the world around us. And, and here's how it works. The world around us says, you know, whatever alternative story you want to live in, dude, that's totally fine as long as it doesn't impinge on mine. I mean, you know, who am I to judge? Right? It's, all, it's a free country, bro. What Jesus would say is that's a lie that will only cause you pain. So you've got to wake up. Don't hit the snooze button anymore on who you're becoming, right? So we don't want to answer, ask these questions, and so we're like, I'll just hit the snooze button. <laughs> a lot of us sleep, use our phone as an alarm clock, but I got tired of not having the snooze button, and so I went and bought an actual alarm clock with the snooze. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're tired, and you just reach over and go, poof. And when you hit the snooze button, what are you saying? You're not saying that you want to sleep all day. You're not saying you want to sleep all night. You're not saying you never want to get up again. You're just saying, just give me eight more minutes, right? <laughs> I'm simply saying, don't hit the snooze button anymore on what is driving your life, on what you're giving your allegiance to. Don't say, well, I'll pay attention to that later. It's not that important. Everything's just fine. Wake up. When you're asleep, you know what happens? The whole world moves by you and you're completely unaware. 
and you're in your own dream state. So wake up. Wake up. Because when you wake up, you see the lion of the tribe of Judah who's going to tear, in the end, going to tear apart every false thing we've built our life upon and is going to conquer everything. He's going to tear it all to pieces. He's not safe, but he's good. And he's the king. And that's who you need in your life, directing your life, setting the direction of your life, telling you where you need to go, what's best. Everything else will eventually cause you pain. Well, I'm going to pray for you. So I want to invite you to stand with me if you would. I want to invite you to uh, think about your life for a moment. To think about uh, how you are. If you would even close your eyes, just kind of have your own private moment. No one's looking at you. They're having their moment. Think about your life. Think about why you're here. What you think went wrong. How you fix it what it'll look like when you get there. Uh, Jesus, we, we all live in these other stories. We are constantly trying to make sense of life and we're uh, constantly trying to understand why things are happening to us and we just don't have the full picture. It's like there's a scroll that's sealed and we wish we could find out what's on the scroll. And everything we try does not break the seal. We've tried so many things to break that seal. And uh, Lord, we want to give that up. You're the only one who's worthy to open the scroll and break the seal. That's just you, only you, nobody else, just you. So we give up on our attempts to sort it all out, to make sense of it. And we want to give our allegiance to the lion. We want to set our defaults in your direction. We want to desire you above everything. We want to allow you to have supremacy in our life, over our life, over our money, over our body, over our politics, over our cars, over our families, over our neighborhoods, over our unions, over our companies. We want you to have supremacy over all those things. And so... uh, Wake us up. Wake us up. If this for you is the moment that you, are, you, you, you say, oh, man, I want to wake up. Uh, man, I want to baptize you on July the 1st. And right after the service, you can go across the hall to the baby cry room, and, and we'll talk about that. But we always leave you with a blessing. And so you'll see people around you holding out their hands. It's their way of saying, I'd like to receive it. And if you'd like to receive that, uh, feel free to do that. If you're not comfortable with that, that's okay. But just receive this blessing. May you know of the God who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is worthy to open the scroll, reveal to you the secrets that you can't access on your own. You're sent now to love God, to love people, to serve the world in his name. Hug someone, tell them you love him. Our prayer team's down front if you need prayer.